We're starting off a, a new series today. Uh, we typically do this every start of the year. Uh, we're a little behind the eight ball, unfortunately. You notice there was no bumper video or music. And so perhaps you were awkwardly thinking, do I sit down now? But, um, but here we are. So we're going to be going through Matthew chapter 6. If you remember last year, um, in, in uh, well, it was a surprise to me as well. I preached a mini-series uh, in Matthew 5, and that's where Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, we're going to be not picking up exactly where we left off, but we will be getting back into the Sermon on the Mount, starting with chapter 6. And the goal for us is to lay, set the table for the direction uh, for this year. If, uh, if you've looked on the Church Center app or if you've seen any of the emails, then we have these little booklets, and they are here, so if you would prefer a, a, a physical copy to, to a digital, <coughs> then we have these booklets, and I'd encourage you all to take them and take some for your family. Uh, and it is a guide on seeking first the kingdom. Um, later in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, Why do you worry about all these things? But seek first the kingdom and God's righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And so as we step into 2023, it would be prudent of us to say, what is it, to ask ourselves, what does it look like for me to seek first? What are the things that I let so easily entangle me? What are the good things that I have let become God things? They have been barriers, obstacles, if you will, to my pursuit of righteousness in Christ, to my drawing near to him. And, and what are the things that just simply need to be cut out because they're, they're just sinful? That, that's an, that should be hopefully obvious to us, but there are other things that, while can be good and be viewed properly in the context of God's kingdom, we still let them ensnare us, if you will. And so this is a time for us to reprioritize our lives and to um, commit in prayer together as God's people and uh, personally and among our families and, and all those sorts of things in every sphere of life that we have responsibility in. Sphere for maintaining and controlling ourselves, our families, our church body, and the world. In every sphere of life, what does it look like to set Jesus as the first and the foremost? And so this leads us to Matthew chapter 6. I do, however, want to recap. It was a year ago, so I don't expect um, everyone to remember the details of that series, but I do want to give a recap to um, that little series and fill in the gaps of what Jesus has preached in the Sermon, of the, in the sermon on the Mount. And so... Jesus began, begins the sermon with the Beatitudes, and Beatitude means supreme blessedness. And so he's setting the stage. He's establishing a distinction between the disciples and the crowd because at the very first thing that happens is he goes up on the mountain, and when he sits down, his disciples come to him. So his disciples leave the crowds and are joined to him. And so at the very start of Jesus' public ministry, if you will, he's distinguishing between the disciples and the crowds. Many people were following him, but not all were his disciples. After that, he establishes the roles of the disciples 
in the earth. We see that in the Beatitudes, and we also see that in his teachings on the church or his, and his followers being the salt and the light of the world. He then affirms in probably one of the most misunderstood passages in, in Scripture, one of them, not the only, that he did not come to abolish the law but to fulfill it. And um, shameless plug, if you want to go back and listen to those sermons, they are online, and I'd encourage you to do so. The, he continues, uh, after summing up that he is the fulfillment of the law, he says one of the most controversial things to the audience in his day, that if your righteousness is not greater than that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. If your righteousness is not greater than the religious leaders in their day, those that they looked to and saw as the most prudent and respectful, venerable followers of Yahweh, he said, if, if you're not more righteous than they, you're not getting in. And he continues on, and he rightly interprets the law. There was much confusion because of the improper teaching and traditions of the Pharisees and the scribes. There was much misunderstanding regarding the law. And he interprets it correctly for them in teaching about anger and lust and divorce and taking oaths and vengeance and what it looks like to properly love your neighbor. And he begins to teach what it looks like for hypocrites and what it should look like for the disciples. And then we get to chapter 6. And so, if you would, please stand. We're going to be reading chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Stand if you're able. (coughs) The Word of God says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, Sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Let's pray. Jesus, worthy are you. We know, trust, and believe that you are the Messiah. And you have given us your word as not only a gift, but as a guide to lead us into all righteousness, to equip us in this life that it might prepare us and sanctify us by the power of your spirit for the life to come. Lord, would your word rebuke us this morning? Would it cut us and shave off that which does not belong. Lord, please purify us as your people. Um, Sanctify us with your word and your spirit this morning. And I pray that we would learn to uh, entrust ourselves to you in all things and to simply live by faith in you, taking you at your word. We trust you and we love you and we pray that we would be taught by you to obey you. In your name I pray and ask these things. Amen. You may be seated. <coughs> and so through, 
So at the very start of this chapter, remember, it's a continuation of the sermon. So it's very important that we, we realize this isn't an abstract. It, this, this dialogue is not divorced from what he's already stated. So we see throughout chapter 6, Jesus continues the sermon with the expectation of righteousness for the disciples. He expects that his disciples will walk in righteousness because he himself is righteous. This is clearly seen in this entire section, um, namely verses 1 through 20. He says things like this, when you give to the needy, and then later in verse 5, when you pray, and again in verse 7, when you pray, and then down in verse 16, when you fast. There's an expectation set by Christ himself that we will be doing these things, that it's not optional. That it's not optional. And this shouldn't come to a surprise to us, right? The main point of the Sermon on the Mount is that you must be blameless to enter the kingdom of heaven. But here's the the bad news. We're not. We're not blameless. In... In the previous section of the sermon, he makes it plain that unless our righteousness is greater than that of the Pharisees and the scribes, we won't enter in. And he says himself that he is the fulfillment of the law. And just so no one is deceived into thinking that they are more righteous than the Pharisees and the scribes, it is possible, by the way, but just so that no one is deceived, he rightly interprets the commands of the law with regards to anger, lust, divorce, and shows that it's actually all in your heart that you have failed the law from your heart and that the things that you've done that look as if you've kept the law and have been blameless before it have been nothing. They're meaningless because in your heart you have disobeyed. You have rejected the law of your Lord. And so, I mean, here, for instance, I would encourage every man, but every woman too, to to memorize this. In verse 27 of chapter 5, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And then he says this, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to, be go- to go into hell. Now, he is being hyperbolic, but the point remains. And how do I know that? Because he, he already establishes that the adultery is in your heart. So the question then is, who can cut out his heart and live? Cutting your eye out and cutting your hand off won't do it. Who can cut his heart out and live? And so Jesus literally is aiming for the heart in the entire sermon and showing that no one is righteous, no one is blameless in regards to the law, and yet the expectation is set. Look at verse 48 of chapter 5, immediately preceding chapter 6. He says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The whole point, whole point, of the sermon is that you must be blameless but you're not therefore you need a foreign righteousness you need a savior 
And this is not a new precedent. Jesus is simply reiterating what has been established long in the Scripture. Throughout the whole storyline of Scripture, God reminds his people that he has saved them so that they might, they might be like him. And this includes us too. We have been saved if we belong to Christ in faith, to belong to him. And in belonging to him, we are conformed to his image. We are made like him. <coughs> the sentiment can be found in the law, in the prophets, in the wisdom literature, and uh, throughout the New Testament. In Ephesians 2, verse 10, Paul writes to the church, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so I'm going to use interchangeably righteousness, good works, because the point of Jesus' dialogue here <clears throat> is not an abstract righteousness. Because the warning is, is don't perform it or don't act on it in light of men. But it's assumed that you will be acting on it, right? Beware of practicing your righteousness. And so, in, for all intensive purposes, intents and purposes, Jesus is assuming that our righteousness is related to what we do with our hands and feet. Okay? There's an implication that it's sourced from him, and we'll see that. But keep that in mind. So throughout the sermon, I'm going to be saying good works or good deeds, righteousness, all interchangeably. So when you think, when you hear me say righteousness or righteous acts, think good works. <clears throat> we saw in Ephesians that we were created for these good works, that we might walk in them. There's something to do, right? It's something to be done. Paul actually urges Titus in his letter to him that he should continually remind the church to do good works. And even says that the false Christians among you will be known by their works. Their works will actually expose them. And so our works are meant to reflect something. They're either going to reflect an allegiance to Jesus or an allegiance to self. And then again in 1 Peter, Peter writes... But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. You see the connection between holiness and righteousness with what we do? Be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. He's quoting the law. I love how he quotes that, and then Jesus says, You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Who can do it? Who can do it? Well, in Jesus, we can. We can. We have been created for good works, as Paul writes the Ephesians. In fact, our righteous deeds, and I'm, <clears throat> I want you to pay attention to the language I'm using, our righteous deeds towards men are the hands and feet of our faith, of our faith. What we believe in our hearts and minds must be put to action through our hands and feet. And you might be thinking, wait a second. What do you, what do you mean this public, public good works? Isn't that Jesus, what Jesus is warning against? And I'll explain later. If we've been created in Christ for righteousness, <coughs> excuse me, if we have been created 
for righteousness, for good works, then the two questions we must honestly ask ourselves are, are these. What are those works? Okay, what are they? And am I walking in them? What are those good works and am I walking in them? The first question, the most obvious answer would be the standard set in Scripture and the teachings of Jesus himself. But I wouldn't just, I wouldn't resign you to only the Gospels. I'd say read the Scriptures. See the standards and the precedents set by God and by faithful saints before us and commit to them, walk in them. There are well-worn paths by faithful saints throughout history, and they have been passed on to us that we might walk in them. And so it's not terribly difficult to know what these works are. And I, I will challenge you, though, and I'll remind you of this challenge at the end, to pray to God for specific works. He might put a neighbor on your heart or a deed to mind and commit that to him and walk in it. And then the second question we must ask is that after we've discovered what those works might be, are we walking in them? Are we doing them? Is our conduct given to fulfilling the works that we've been created in Christ Jesus to do? <coughs> our good works will be seen by the watching world, and in fact, they must be. Hang with me. I'm going to explain this in light of what Jesus is teaching. How do I know this? How do I know that they must be seen? Well, it's in the Sermon on the Mount. Verse 16 of chapter 5, Jesus says this, In the same way, talking about being a light, a light on a hill, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So which is it? Do we let our light shine before men? Or do we fear practicing our righteousness before others? Well, Jesus is not contradicting himself in any way, shape, or form. The issue that Jesus is raising is regarding why we are practicing our righteousness and for whom are we practicing it. Notice in verse 17 of chapter 5, it says, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It's all so that others may praise God. And Jesus' warning is very specific here in chapter 6. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order, that's the, op- that's the operating phrase here, in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And so the heart of Jesus' warning is that you must not practice righteousness in such a way that you seek the approval of man. And so this leads us to my second point. We have a secret audience, a secret audience. Again, Jesus' warning is given with regards to a self-serving motive in order to be seen by them. That's, that's the operating 
phrase there. He even says before others. It almost has this idea of you're putting on a show. You're doing it before them that you might be seen by them. Which is why I think the heart for us is doing good works, acting righteously towards men in light of Christ. Loving our neighbor as ourselves, We commit our acts towards others in real love. But we don't commit our acts before them that they might see us. Because why? Because we have a secret audience. Jesus gives this warning and then he cuts right to the chase and says, you will have no reward from your heavenly father if you do this. So there's at least, there's a couple of observations we have from that. One God's watching. God's watching. And two, he is repaying people according to their works. For Jesus to plainly state, if you live for the approval and the praise of men, God will not reward you, then we must understand there is a reward for righteous deeds done unto God, for God towards men. And there is no reward if they're done for the sake of man's approval. Why? Well, because God's watching and he renders unto each man according to his deeds. And so, the, so if we were to ask our question, why must we do good works and for whom are they? The answer to both those questions is for God, for God. We do them for God because we were created in Christ Jesus for them. They are all for him. And we, and he made us for them. So that's the why. And because all things are from him and for him and to him, he is the recipient. He is the audience, if you will, of our good deeds. It's the entire operating principle of Jesus' warning. He's saying, look, don't, do these things self-servingly. Don't be selfish. Your motive should not be concerning self because God is watching, because God is watching, and he repays people according to their works. This is also a common theme in the scriptures. Proverbs 15 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. And so do we live like that, knowing that God sees it all? He knows the secrets of our hearts. Our motives cannot be hidden from his sight. He knows us. He sees all. Who can hide from God Almighty? And therefore, we work for his namesake towards others, that he might be pleased because he's worthy, that he might be pleased. As disciples of Jesus, we live before an audience of one rather than the audience of the world. He is the one, God, is the one for whom we have been made, by whom we have been saved, and to whom we offer our good works and righteousness as worship. I'll say that again. He is the one for whom we have been made, by whom we have been saved, 
and to whom we offer our good works and our righteousness as worship. The Lord is the source of it all. In him we live and move and have our being. In fact, no matter where you look in life, this is one thing that I don't know if us in the West do a very good job of it. We don't ponder the intricacies of God as creator in the world. We understand it intellectually, sure. But it's helpful to read what I call, <laughs> I like reading old dead men, right? It's guys, saints that have uh, laid a very uh, faithful track for us to walk in through their writings. And you learn the ways in which they failed and the ways in which they were incredibly faithful. And <laughs> many of them throughout the ages looked and saw the beauty and the grandeur of God through the world, rightly so, because there was a mystery to the created order and a grandeur of the cosmos that was difficult to understand. But we live in an age where we send spaceships up in the sky and we think we know it all. And yet, and yet no matter where we look, <coughs> If something is good, if it's lovely, if it's beautiful, if it's honorable and admirable, if it's venerable, if it's pure, then it's, it has its source in God and God alone. Because he is pure. He is good. And so as we commit ourselves to good deeds, it's all for him because it's all been sourced from him. We must operate knowing that he sees us. That should be both a fearful thing and a joyful thing. He sees us. There is no escape, but he sees us and he loves us. Therefore, the response of our lives must be for him. It's the entire response of everything we do in every sphere of life, in every responsibility, in every duty, in every relationship, in every word we speak, in every thought we think, in every act we put our hands and feet to, it's all for him. It's all for him, not for man. And it's not for ourselves either. It's for him. <coughs> and this is what I mean when I say we do these things towards others so that he might be magnified when we see him for who he is and seek him as the chief end of all all our deeds then and only then will we rightly practice righteousness towards others every motive is defiled everything is mingled with sin and self until we see clearly that God is in heaven and he sees in secret Jesus is not mincing his words at the end of verse 1 when he says, your father who is in heaven. He's setting up, a, a, <clears throat> he's setting up two ends of the spectrum, if you will. Practicing your righteousness before men whom you see or doing it for God who is in heaven and therefore you can't see. 
living for the one who we can't see requires faith. It requires faith. And so in dedicating our actions to him, we are living in faith because we're saying, though I can't see you, I trust you. I believe that you are who you say you are. I take your word as your word. Therefore, I obey. I don't see you, but I trust you. That's faith. That's faith. That's why it's the hypocrites who trumpet, them, trumpet their good deeds in the, in the marketplace and say, look what we've done. They want the approval of man. It's what they see. It's immediate. They know nothing else. But the disciples will commit themselves quietly to God Almighty because they know he is watching and he is just and their reward will be with him. In Psalm 33, as I mentioned earlier, there's both fear and comfort in the Lord watching and I love this specifically for those who belong to him. Psalm 33, 18 says, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love. Do you see the, it almost seems like there's tension, but it's not. The true believer knows what it's like to live in the fear of the Lord and in the joy of knowing his love and care for us. And it's, it's said so beautifully here in just one verse. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love. He is God and we trust him. And we know that his love is on us in Christ. Therefore, we live for him. We live for him. Again, the world only sees that which is natural. But by faith, we understand that the Lord is in the heavens and he sees in secret. He sees in secret. <coughs> and one last point before I move on to the next one last statement before I move on to the next point look at verse 3 but when you give to the needy do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret very interesting I do think it's a bit hyperbolic given that it's impossible for you to do something that the rest of your body doesn't know. But I think the point Jesus is making here is this. You shouldn't even care yourself about the good deeds you're putting, you're putting your hands to. Meaning, it's not for you. Your pride has no place in the deed. Many of us commit ourselves so that we think better of ourselves. Ah. <sighs> look what I've done and even if we did if we uh, <clears throat> performed righteous deeds in secrecy among men we still ourselves know what we've done and we think better of ourselves and Jesus is saying don't let your right hand excuse me your left hand know what your right hand is doing don't even consider it give it to God give it to him perform your duty in fear and love of God and move on you need not dwell and think better of yourself and be inflated in ego. I think of Paul in 1 Corinthians 4. He says, I don't even judge myself. <laughs> That's in light of negative stuff, meaning there could be things I'm not doing right, but I don't judge myself because Jesus is my righteousness. 
But then also in Philippians 3, he says, I press on because I haven't obtained the goal. I haven't obtained it. We've, never, we've not arrived, church. We've not arrived. It is a fool's errand to think we're better than we are. The best pray, prayer we could pray as a church is, Lord, humble us. Humble us. That we might not live according to our egos. That we not be inflated with pride. That we not be haughty. That is the best prayer I think we could have going into this year. That the Lord might search us and reveal to us those sins that are so rooted to self. Jesus says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. You serve God, not self. And so may we commit, like Paul, to pressing on, not not considering ourselves as have arrived or has obtained anything, but we simply press on because Jesus is worthy. And in all this, as we live for this secret audience, we know that there is a just reward for the faithful. Though the Lord sees in secret, he will judge openly. He will judge openly. The, the text doesn't explicitly say that, but I believe that to be true because of the rest of Scripture and even the rest of the synoptic Gospels. Jesus teaches clearly all that is hidden will be revealed. All that is hidden, hidden is, will be revealed. But verse 4, so that your giving may be in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you, will reward you. There is a promise of reward to those who commit themselves to the Lord, who commit their righteousness secretly to him. In Luke 8, Jesus says, for, I already mentioned it, but I'll say it again. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. All things will be revealed. And as we've already established, the Lord will render unto each one according to his deeds. <coughs> Just read the Bible in any, in any uh, section. The law, the prophets, the histories the gospels the epistles and you'll see that sentiment he he judges fairly because he is a judge and he is just he will render unto each one according to his deeds and this is true for us judgment will come to the house of god so this specific promise for the disciples is that the father's judgments will render a reward for those who devote their righteous deeds to him in faith You have not given them so that the public may see you, but you have given them quietly, secretly to him, that he might be praised, that he might be magnified, and therefore you have a reward. What this reward may be, um, I don't think we can specifically know, and when it will be given, we can't say entirely. However, I do believe that God will give some measure of reward in this life. Here's why. Isaiah 3, verse 10. Tell the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. I love that promise. 
Tell the righteous it will be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. <coughs> Again, in Galatians 7, Paul writes, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. Wow. You will receive the harvest of whatever that is you sow. That's scary, but also encouraging. We know assuredly that the fullness of <coughs> our rewards will be given at the last day because all things will be revealed. So I think in taking Jesus at his word here, he really means for us to give ourselves to the Lord, to perform righteous deeds for his name, and hope and trust that we will have a reward. And I do think that reward is for this life and the life to come. I've seen many, I've heard many a story, read many a book, and, her, and um, seen many lives of those who have given themselves earnestly to the, the work that the Lord's called them to do. <clears throat> and I've seen this especially so in those who have committed themselves to generosity. The Lord has always overflowed their cup. Their barns have always been full. And their cisterns always overflowing. Without fail. Without fail. And I know in my own life, in seasons in which things I could not explain, but I knew the Lord was calling me to do something when it seemed to be so sacrificial, I wasn't sure, and I committed to it anyway. And what I received in return was unexplainable. And, was, and I was overflowing time and time again. And if anyone wants to know a particular uh, story, I'll tell you. Come ask me. But I say all that to say you can trust him. You can trust him. Jesus says so plainly, work that you might have the reward. <laughs> God is watching, and he will. He will pour out a just sentence according to our deeds. And so may we, may we sow righteous deeds that we might harvest righteousness. We must take him at his word. So the question then for ourselves, another question is this. Is God's approval enough? Regardless of some tangible reward, is simply knowing that he is pleased with us, is it enough? I think it's easy to acknowledge, well, to think that and to even say it. Yeah, of course, it's enough. But do we believe it, really? Do we function, do we operate in that mode, that Jesus is sufficient and his approval is simply enough. If everything else is stripped from me, if I'm robbed of every comfort and every earthly joy, is Jesus enough? And will I commit to him and to his ways, regardless of what I can see? Jesus knows that we really love ourselves. We really do. We're always performing in some way, shape, or form. Some of us have different proclivities. Some of us are really struggle with people-pleasing. We want others 
to approve of us and to be satisfied with us. Others, it's more about being approved and satisfied with self. (laughs) I'll be honest, I'm the latter. I hardly care what people think of me, but boy, do I want to uh, scratch the itches that I get and have things and do stuff and be satisfied with self. And so Jesus' words are very sharp to me. Don't let your left hand know what your right is doing. It's the hypocrites that give and sound the alarm. And so the warning for us is, may we not be hypocrites. May we not be like, at the end of the sermon, the man who builds his house on sand. So when the winds come and the waves crash, that house falls down. But rather, would we simply take Jesus at his word? This is, this is, this is profound. But rather than explaining away something, why don't we just read it and believe it? Let's take him at his word. Let's commit our ways to him. He assumes that we will be doing these things. And we're going we're gonna to tease out these specific deeds later in the series. That's why I'm not focusing too much on giving. But he's laying the framework for us, church. Will we this year commit our ways to him? And say, Jesus, you said it, therefore I believe it. And therefore, I'll do it. If we continue to function and operate so that we're, we have the approval of man, we're really walking in unbelief. It's unbelief. We would rather have the reward of their approval than the secret reward. Well, the reward to come from the one who sees in secret. Which is, which is better? Which is better? And it's not a false sense of humility to say, I want the reward of Christ. I think a lot of times we trick ourselves into thinking that I'm just a lowly servant. Whatever the Lord doles out to me, I'll take. When Jesus says, you should be living for the reward. Desire it. Because it's for you when you entrust yourself to God Almighty. Take him at his word. Live on the promises. Set your feet down on the rock of Christ and declare his promises. Walk in them. It's for us, church. May we not be like those who say, yes, I am doing these things, but we'll see. We'll see. I'm timid because I really don't know. Rather than no, the Lord said it, therefore I'll do it. And he's worthy to be praised. That's what he wants from us. All we'll have when we live like the hypocrite is the reward of empty praise from men. It's worthless. It's worthless. It will die when they do. There are some in this world who have accrued the praise and reputation of men and they have left a little legacy. But even that too will die. When history comes to its full consummation, when Christ establishes his throne at the last on earth and the new age dawns, 
None of those things will matter, ever. Well, they just won't. And so Jesus says, they have their reward. They wanted it now, they're going to get it now. But we must live for the reward to come. It's on that day that all judgments will be poured out. Wrath to whom wrath is stored and glorious rewards to those who choose to quietly serve the Lord their God. And so here's our conclusion, and I have challenges for us, a charge for us, if you will. Just to recap, we are called to righteous acts in Christ Jesus because he himself is righteous, and he is our righteousness if we belong to him. This is the message of the Sermon on the Mount. We must be perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect. But we need a Savior. And Jesus, Jesus is that Savior. He has graciously given us his righteousness through faith. So therefore, we take Christ at his word in trust that our righteousness is from him and it's for him. So therefore, we don't need to parade it around. If it's from him and if it's for him, then what business does it have being paraded around for the approval of man? But instead, we commit our way to him. Let us, and here's our challenge, let us search the scriptures for the pattern of good works and righteous deeds that we're called to walk in. I challenge you this year, if you don't know what it is you should be doing with your life, then search the scriptures. Search the scriptures and then search some more. <laughs> Pray. Pray the scriptures. Seek the counsel of trusted brethren. That's why we are a family. Because the Lord gives us counsel as his people. We often get lost in our own heads. And so let us walk in the light of covenant community. Let us search the scriptures together and pray together. And for very specific things that the Lord has prepared for us, and I believe there are specific things for each of us that he has prepared for us in Christ Jesus, let us pray for them that they might be revealed to us. And when the Lord speaks to us, let us walk in faith. And specifically, I challenge us for this. As we commit to those deeds, don't tell us all. Don't tell us all. For husbands in the room, if it's small, little small things, maybe it's in serving your wife or your kids, your neighbor, coworkers, whatever it may be, just do it. Just do it. If it's a really big thing and you'll have to change the lifestyle of your family for a season, you might want to talk with it, talk with your wife about it. You 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 are one in marriage. But let's take serious Jesus' call to do it in secret. Do it in secret. And don't pat yourself on the back, but do it. Commit it to him and live expectantly knowing that he sees you and he will reward you. And that is sufficient. And so may we as a church do these things. I think it might even be helpful in your packet for the start of the year uh, that's in the back, there are things, there, there are things for you to write out, goals, if you will, 
or strategies and plans for you to put into practice the things that Christ calls us to do. If, some, if the Lord lays something on your heart, write it down. Hold yourself accountable. Hold yourself accountable. Let your own words <laughs> haunt you. That we might be faithful before God in living righteously towards men, but not for their sake, but for his. Let's pray. <clears throat> Jesus, you truly, you truly see us. We know that you search the hearts of men. And so I pray that you would forgive us all. I know that I'm, I'm the, the last person who should preach this message. My motives are always mingled with sin and self. But I, I trust that you are sufficient to save. That your grace is sufficient and that your power is perfected in my weakness, and if in mine, then certainly in the lives of your church. Lord, please, would you be gracious towards us in refining us. Teach us to commit our path to you. Teach us to not consider self and be, and be haughty in our own eyes, but rather to think the most of you and then also to think more of our brothers, our sisters, and our neighbors, that we might live rightly before you and towards others. I pray that you would convict us now even um, over those specific things you have prepared for us beforehand in Christ Jesus. We want to walk in them, and we want to take you at your word. And so I pray now that you would speak to us. And if there's anything that we know we should have been doing and haven't done it yet, Lord, would you forgive us for our, our tarrying, and would you give us the courage to walk in it for your namesake, that you might be magnified in us and through us. Lord, thank you that though we don't see you, we know you see us. And that your eye is on those who fear you and who hope in your steadfast love. Thank you, Lord, for loving us in Christ Jesus and for establishing your righteousness in us. We praise your name. And we magnify you, Lord. It's in your name we pray and ask all this. Amen.